0: So uh, we are starting this new series today called Define the Relationship. My, uh, I have two boys. Um, Caleb is here in the front row. Caleb is a big, strong, athletic kid. Caleb can do anything. He's good at everything he's ever tried. And frankly, it's really annoying. Um, my older son, who will probably watch this online later, not so much. He has to work really hard at things because he is a good athlete, but he's not a great athlete. And so as John was growing up, he played all kinds of different sports and he was good. I mean, he made the all-star team in baseball and stuff like that. But you know, you get to high school and it starts to become the best of the best of the best. And so by the time John got to high school, he had really focused what he was good at down to wrestling. And uh, he had grown up wrestling since he was in third or fourth grade. And uh, when he got into high school, he, made, uh, he was varsity as a freshman. Um, now, Part of that was because he was a, sl- a man. Uh, remember what Zacchaeus was last week? John was a bit of a wee little man. And uh, so he weighed about 103 pounds, and he was able to come in. And there was a couple of the kids, but he was able to win that spot. And so he wrestled varsity as a freshman at 103. And he had a pretty good season and all the rest. And so now he comes into his sophomore year, and he's a returning varsity letter winner. But unbeknownst to most of the folks, uh, but I knew, of course, and he knew, there were three or four kids that were coming up that would turn out to be the three or four best kids in the history of West Mars Central Wrestling, really. They would all go on to win over 100 matches. And they were all on every side of the weight that John was on. And so John quickly realized, I remember when I picked him up from practice, he said, yeah, this isn't gonna go well for me this year. And uh, so he wound up being JV his sophomore year after being varsity as a freshman. Now, he was a good wrestler. He went undefeated at JV. He won all the tournaments at JV. He, he was JV wrestler of the year. You know, he got the plaque and all the rest, but he, he couldn't wrestle varsity because he couldn't break through all those incredible kids. Junior year rolls around, and John is trying to find a spot. And you know something that's kind of strange it happens in high school. Everybody tends to grow at the same rate, you know? And so he's trying to crack that lineup. And so he starts starving himself so that he can get into this wrestling lineup. And he starves himself down enough that he's actually able to wrestle enough, of about half the time, varsity junior year. And uh, he letters again as a junior. But now he's coming into his senior year, and uh, he has been very focused on wrestling, and he, he, he did everything he could to get in that lineup. And part of that was he cut his weight down to 126 pounds. And John was not so small as a senior that he should, should have been at 126 pounds. Uh, I never saw a more miserable kid. He would, it would be, you know, warm, it'd be hot, and he'd be shivering. He would come home from school, and he would just fall asleep, you know, standing up, because he cut so much weight um, to try to get down to that spot. But he got a spot, and he's wrestling varsity as a senior. And in the second or third match of the year, uh, early in the season, we were wrestling Mendham uh, High School. Uh, we went to West Morris, as a far superior high school. And uh, so as the, you know, Mendham is the big wrestling match every year, you know, Mendham West Mars, and John was wrestling, and uh, the kid, not intentionally, but illegally, wound up grabbing John by both arms and reached around in front and tripped him forward, and John and the kid both came down on John's head, and John was out, like unconscious on the mat, and they didn't realize it, so they kept wrestling, and finally they stopped, and You know, John came to, and then they stopped the match because obviously he'd been knocked out, and he freaked out because he wanted to wrestle. This was his whole senior year. He'd been building up for this since fourth grade. You know, don't stop the match. I I, want to wrestle. They stopped the match. Came to find out John had a very serious concussion. He actually spent a week in our basement because they didn't want him in light. Um, He wasn't able to go to school for a week, and uh, to make a long story short, his senior wrestling season was gone, and it was very disappointing for him. So Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because as a sophomore, he decided he was going to try to pole vault because somebody said, well, if you wrestle, you should pole vault, they they do well. And he was a freak pole vaulter. It was crazy how good he was at pole vaulting. And so as a a junior, after only pole vaulting for one year uh, and not pole vaulting off season or anything because he wrestled, he wound up going to the meet of champions. It's the highest meet, track meet you can go to in the state of New Jersey. And uh, he comes into his senior year, and he's ranked top 10 in the state. And we're getting, you know, he's getting calls from colleges. Lafayette, the coach is coming out to talk to him and all the rest. And so as much as he was disappointed by what happened in wrestling, that was very difficult for him and for for me. We knew, you know, don't worry about it, because really you're good at this pole vaulting thing. Goes through, wins all the meets, does all this. Well, it comes down to the second-to-last meet of the year, his high school year, and it's the state meet, and the top three kids in each, there's two, a few state meets, top three kids go to the meet of champions again. Well, John was favored to win by a lot. And so uh, Joan was busy, and she said, should I go? I said, don't bother going. I mean, it's not even going to be close. I mean, he's just going to skip right through this. And I even thought about not going, but I decided to go. Drove down to South Plainfield, and uh, he's waiting to come in. You know, in pole vaulting, you get to come in at whatever height you want to come in at. And so John chooses to come in at 12 feet, and he had cleared 12 feet a million times. It was not much of an effort for him to clear 12 feet. And so finally it gets to 12 feet, and John comes in, and you're allowed three shots. Well, first shot, John misses at 12 feet. So I'm going, hmm, that's not good. And uh, so he goes back and, you know, he takes a couple minutes and then he takes his second attempt and he misses again at 12 feet. And all of a sudden, you could just see the pressure of the whole world go right on to his, all of the years, fourth, I mean, I've played, I put a baseball mitt on that kid when he was in his, his crib. I've thrown a ball to him every, every day that he could catch one. And all of that came hurtling back onto me and him at that moment as I stood on the sides outside of the gate and watched him get ready to take his third attempt. And uh, he ran down and he planted his pole and he knocked the bar off again. And instantly, everything that we had done from the time he was a little boy was over. He, I would never see my son compete athletically ever again. Um. He would never get to do a sport ever again. It just ended like that. Um, and he came over, and uh, he cried, and I cried. And Now, this is going to sound really stupid, okay, but this was really meaningful to me at the time. And uh, I got in the car to drive home, and I was never so mad. Because, see, after he missed the second one, I started praying. God, please don't, don't do this. Not, not. Not after all that he's been through. Not after what he did for wrestling. He used to drive himself an hour each way to pole vaulting lessons and pay for them himself. And I'm going, please don't do this, God. Please let him just, all he's going to do is just do his average and he'll be fine. Please, God. And he missed. I got in the car and I was driving home. And I I let, I got to be honest with you, I let God have it. I mean, I, I started recounting all the things I've done for him. Like, God, do you understand what I... I've given you my whole life. Like God, I quit my job. You know, my family, I rearranged what my family's dreams and goals were. I, this is what, and this is, this is what I get. I mean, I, I got all, I wasn't asking much. All I wanted for him to do was just do average. That's all I asked. I didn't ask for him to set a record, God. I didn't ask for other some other kid's pull to snap and have, God. All I wanted was for him to just be average. And this is how it works out. I was was the most mad and disappointed I've ever been. I know it sounds stupid, okay? and In hindsight, it is stupid. But at that moment, my disappointment in God was very, very real because I thought I understood how the relationship worked. I did for him, and he did for me. That's the way it works. Have you ever felt that way? Where you're like, God, I don't get it. Like, I do so much for you, God. But, and the cry usually starts, but my, but my kids. Or, God, God I've, I've tried so hard, I go to church, I give my money, I go on mission trips, but my marriage. And God, I've been praying, and, and I, I, I've been trying so hard, and, and my job. God, that phone call from the doctor. Why don't you come through for me? I mean, I've done everything you asked me to do. I was so disappointed in God that day. And maybe you have had that drive home, I don't know if it was, maybe for you it was from an office, or from a courtroom, or from a school test, or from a doctor's visit, but maybe you've tasted that disappointment, and if you have, and I have, what you experienced and felt is what we're going to be talking about and sharing with each other and being honest with each other over the the next few weeks, and that's it, This this is it. We didn't understand the relationship we were called to with God. We got it wrong. Now, I'm so serious about these talks that we've incorporated this into all of our church. Steve is going to be going through this with your high schoolers uh, over the next bunch of weeks. Most of our small groups are going to be going through this material over the next bunch of weeks. And the elders are going to start a special class second service um, in October to go through some of these principles in a few weeks. This is a big deal. Let me give you, so that's one way I, some of us experience God. That's some, one of the ways, God, I, I perform for you and you come through for me. That's kind of one of the ways we've defined our relationship with God. But there's others. I had a friend that was, started a, a church. He gave up his job. He met his wife. She was a Christian. He came to Christ. He, he quit his job and he became a pastor. And he was told, he was brought up in the 70s in California and in a church that grew to a nice size. And he was told, here's principles for raising your family. If you, if you raise your kids under these seven biblical principles, you are guaranteed this result. And so my friend, who's this wonderful man, he's the most spiritual man I've ever met. He loves God at a level I've never understood anybody that I know to love at that level. He raised his kids, and kid one came through, and, 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 and they followed the principles, and the principles worked. And then kid two came through, and they followed the principles, and the principles worked. And then kid three came through, and kid three wound up a drug addict, unwed mother, pregnant, living on the streets of Los Angeles. But he followed the principles. And he said to me one day, he said, the, the, biggest thing, uh, the biggest lie that was perpetuated to me about the relationship that we're called to have with God is that if you do A and you do B, you're guaranteed to get C. And that was never the way the relationship was created to be. We see this relationship defined lots of times for us in our upper middle class communities. We love the books on three principles for godly success in the workplace. We follow these four biblical principles for financial freedom. Now, none of these things are wrong. All of these things have some truth to them, right? But they're just slightly off. They're not as important. They're not the way that the relationship should be governed. There's a sign on 206 that, that kind of sums this up, out in Newton. I don't know if you guys ever drive out that way. There's a big picture and it's got a Bible on it. It says, confused, read the owner's manual right and so my friend gary read the owners manual he followed the rules but it didn't work out this posture this one i'm talking about now defines the relationship by saying that god is essentially a watchmaker he made the watch he wound it up and now he's left but he left you the instructions so as long as you follow the instructions you don't really need god just follow the principles and you'll succeed Perhaps you thought the relationship worked in a third kind of way. Maybe you were taught along the journey that here's the deal. God's highest desire for you, his number one goal for you, is your happiness. A pain-free life. A worry-free life. Your favorite verse, you have it, you know, cross-stitched on your pillow on your couch is, you know, that God came, Jesus came to give me life and to give it to me abundantly. Thus, God's primary, and I've had people use that verse to justify all kinds of things. All kinds of sin. Well, God wants me to be happy. So clearly, He doesn't want me to stay in this marriage. You've come to believe God's primary purpose is to bless you, to give you the desires of your heart. And yet, it, it, when you don't get those desires of your heart, when you start to look around, you go, going, you know what, my house isn't as big as I want it to be, and I've been asking God about that. And you know what, my wife isn't as pretty as I want her to be, and my husband, he's not as attentive as I want him to be. And my kids are not performing the way I thought that they should. And I've been asking God, and I've been praying Him to enlarge my influences and make my circles and my fields bigger. But He just doesn't seem to be interested. I mean, shouldn't as a follower of God, shouldn't, you know, I'm told on TV, the religious channels told me that if I believe that I should get a promotion, if I just believe I should get a grade or a girl or a job. I mean, I prayed about this stuff, and yet I'm just still getting by. Doesn't God want me to be happy? And there's another way that we relate to God, and this one's dangerous for us because our church, in many ways, is a missional force for God. But perhaps we've thought the relationship went something like this. God, I understand what it is you want from me. You want my life, so I will give it to you. I'm going to sacrifice my dreams for my future. I'm going to sacrifice my desires in order that I might spend my life accomplishing things for you. I was going to be a doctor. I was going to be a businessman. But I've come to understand that, God, your greatest desire is for me to serve you. And so I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm going to go into full-time Christian ministry. I, I love you, I want to please you, and this is the pathway to meaning in my life, is serving you. And so off to seminary, all these people go, and you know, and they rack up lots of debt, and they come out, and they can't get a job. And I mean, kid after kid that comes out, and I, I don't understand, I just wanted to serve God, and it somehow hasn't worked out for me. Maybe you felt you were called to serve God or you should be serving God and you're not and, and so you live under that and it strange your relationship with God. Welcome to defining the relationship. Or as the kids say, a few weeks of DTR talks. Now in my, in my day, we didn't call them DTR talks. We called them, at least what was mainly my experience was, I just want to be friends talks. Many of you know the drill. Boy falls in love with girl. Girl likes the boy because she likes the attention. She likes him carrying her books in between classes or maybe the ride home after school. But after a short amount of time, a couple of weeks before things get a little too crazy or it gets maybe a little too close to prom time and he starts to get the wrong idea, girl calls boy and says, I think we need to talk. I like you, but just as a friend. And if this sounds personal and perhaps has a tinge of hurt or bitterness to it, welcome to my high school life. See, that was a defining the relationship talk. I I want you to understand, John, thanks for the ride home, but Jimmy's cuter. In our day, I can't tell you how many couples that I I meet that meet meet online. And I actually think that's a pretty cool thing. I I think that there's, I I like that, uh, you know. Uh, I asked my brother. My brother is divorced. He's living in Florida. In fact, he's moving home this weekend. I said to him one he's always saying he's looking for the right girl. He's looking for Mrs. Right. And I said, well, Matt, have you gone on any of these online dating sites? He goes, have I gone on any of them? I'm on all of them. <laughs> so you could Google my brother's profile when you get home. Um, I went on, so I went on eHarmony because eHarmony has a defining the relationship page. And here's what it says. It says, nearly every Hollywood romantic comedy hinges on a dramatic moment when a couple finally must define the relationship. Imagine the scene where one lover boards an airplane intending to leave the other forever, only to remain standing on a tarmac as the plane takes off. I couldn't leave the fellow coos. We were meant to be together. But in real life, however, as they say, endings usually are not quite so predictable. And that's where the talk comes in. The define the relationship discussion involves, these are interesting questions, the define the relationship discussion involves questions such as, are we, quote, just friends is What is what we're going to be asking about our relationship with God over the coming weeks? Or are we more than that? Are we dating exclusively? Or is our relationship just casual? What exactly is the level of commitment you have to me? See, having this, according to eHarmony, having this kind of discussion can seem risky because we don't want to appear pushy and scare off the other person. But if you've begun to feel strongly about the individual you're dating, asking if he or she, or she shares your feelings can be a frightening moment of truth. And I think that's what you're going to experience over the next couple of weeks as we start to ask these questions because they can become frightening moments of truth. So at church and in your small groups, we're going to have DTR talks. Just what kind of relationship are we in with this God? Much of what I'm talking about has been brilliantly outlined by a guy named Sky Jethani in his book called With. Specifically, that book called With is what many of our small groups are going to be working through this fall. Why is the book called With? Because while we've adopted all kinds of postures regarding our relationship with God, four specifically that I already outlined for you, Dino put them up, there's four of them that we tend to live, in a sense, uh, under. Let me explain. Most of us have experiences in life in relationship to one of these four different postures. I've had relationships with God in my life based on all four of them at different paths at different times in my life. For example, that afternoon when I was driving home from John's track meet, when I was disappointed, when I was just sitting in my car, and I'm wrestling with God, and I'm calling him out. God, I don't get it. I've given you everything. All I do is serve you, and this is how you reward me? What did I ask for God? Was it all that much? What I wanted my kid to do was average. And despite all I do for you, everything I've given up for you, all of the time and the sacrifice, God, you didn't come through for me. Now, that's embarrassing for me to admit to you as your pastor. But in that moment, my posture with God was not a relationship defined by life with God. Instead, it was defined by Jethani in this way, life under God. I believe my relationship with God at that moment was a cause and effect relationship. I understand what God wants of me. I work really hard to do it. I perform to be a good boy. I stay within the boundaries of what he approves of, and then he comes through for me. This is life under God. We obey his commands. He blesses our lives or our families or our nations. Now, there are elements of that that are certainly true. But it is not the overarching way we're to relate to God. Next week, we're going to look at this one specifically because it's probably the most common one we struggle with and we misinterpret and we get discouraged because God doesn't come through for us. Now, some of us, when we think, we think our relationship is governed by life over God, That's where God has given us principles and plans. And if if we just work really hard at the formulas, well, we don't really need God. We just need the plan. We don't need prayer or intimacy with God. He told us what to do. Now we just have to do it. Get the principles from the Bible, and then my business will prosper. Get the principles from the Bible, and my my spouse and my kids will turn out okay. The watchmaker, I don't need the watchmaker because I got the manual to the watch. The mystery and the wonder of the world gets lost and God is abandoned in favor of formulas and controllable outcomes. This is maybe best defined, uh, p- perhaps what maybe an unchurched friend might say to you, you know, I don't really think that much about God. I understand how the world works. I don't really need God. I mean, you work hard, you play by the rules, and you'll be fine. Now, there's another way people relate to God. It's this life from God. They are blessing consumers, God just wants me to be happy, rich, full, and blessed. He would never want me to say to stay married to somebody that I no longer love. He would never want me to have to walk through any kind of trial. And people in this relationship with God, and this is all of us from time to time, when, when we're here, all we want from God is his blessings and his gifts, but we're not actually particularly interested in God or what he, could get, what he himself is for us. And then there's, lastly, the most celebrated posture of the Christian life, which is life for God. Now, it's hard. It's a wonderful calling. But deep in it, there's a heartbreaking misunderstanding. I mean, this is the older son life in the prodigal story. But, Father, all I've done is serve you. You're going to see coming over the weeks that all four of these postures are recorded in the Scriptures. God deals with people that come at him. Jesus deals with people that come at him from each of these postures. But this life for God posture, it believes that the most significant thing that you can accomplish is great things in God's service. Again, like the others, there's truth there, but it's only a partial truth. And when one of these four postures becomes our default posture for how we relate to God, under, over, for, from, they never give you what you're really seeking, what you were created for, what you've been trying to find. And that's a life of knownness and connection and intimacy with God. Jethani, in his book, he has a great quote. um, And it was driven out of his interaction with young Christians that were going off to college. And he would start to meet with them and mentor them. Most of them had grown up in Christian homes. Most of them had significant church experience. Most of the kids knew the Bible better than most of the kids on campus. They could engage in deep spiritual and theological discussions. They spoke freely the cliched line about having a personal relationship with Jesus. But when he pushed them, when he scratched beneath the surface and asked them what what this relationship with Jesus was really like for them, what the experience of living with God was like, nobody could answer the question. For them, and for maybe for us, and certainly for our kids that we send off to school and wind up walking away from God, God had become kind of a theological reality, a, a, a sterile calculation. They related to Him uh, the way an officer at a large corporation might speak about the CEO whose portrait hangs on the wall but whom he's never met. There's admiration. And respect, that's evident. And there's even a dedication to serve. But a personal knowledge of God, even amongst these Christian kids, was largely absent. And so the quote that he gave, which I loved, is this. He said, you know how we give our kids um, inoculations from chickenpox and other diseases? You give them a little bit of it so that they actually can't get the full-blown disease? He said, my concern is we're inoculating an entire generation to the Christian faith. Many of these kids come with a holy desire to know God, to experience his presence in their lives, to be cared for like sheep entrusted to a meek and gentle gentle shepherd. But that's not what they see or experience. In fact, they may leave the church without ever seeing a beautiful and enthralling vision of life with God. See, that's what you were called to, life with God. When their experience of faith leaves them disappointed, they may falsely conclude that Christianity has failed, and you might be there this morning. And here comes the great quote, and he takes it from G.K. Chesterton. Check this out. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Because we embrace all these other formulaic approaches to God. The Christian ideal is this, and we've missed it so badly, life with God. Let me have a first DTR talk with you this morning. Here's how you need to understand something about life with God. You were the dream of the Creator. He thought you up. He created you, and He meant you to live Every moment of every day of your life, of your everyday normal existence, in constant communion with him, not living for him or from him or under him or over him, but with him. This is completely outlined in the scripture over and over again, but somehow we've missed it. What does the scripture say in John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what was God. God. He was, in the beginning, with God. Before space or time, before any creation as we know it, the pre-existent God lives in communion. He lives with himself. Jesus here is described as the word. He lives in unity with God. Now watch what happens. Genesis chapter 1, God said, let's make man in the same way, in our image, in our likeness. And we're going to give him dominion over the fish in the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he created, God created, man, his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. God welcomes, get this, God welcomes humanity into the eternal communion of the Godhead. He created you with the sole purpose of being with Him. To be, in a sense, you were created like Him so you could be with Him. And live in intimacy and relationship with God. Why? Did he want, was it just to, to look at each other and stare over candles and dinner together? No, he actually had a purpose in mind, too. Genesis 2. So the Lord formed the man out of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man whom he had formed there. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant. you got to picture the gorgeous beauty of this. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord took the man and he put him in the garden. And and listen to the cause and the purpose here. He put him there to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that. For in that day, when you eat of that, you'll surely die. And so as God looked at this, he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him. Now again, listen to the purpose here. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. God created you. He created me. He created us in his image. He welcomes us into community with himself. And then crazily enough, he says, come and partner with me. This is going to be Awesome. I need you to walk with me. I want you to come along. We're going to work together here in Eden. I'm going to allow you to rule over this place on my behalf. Hey, you can be in charge. This is what you were created for. Life with God. Pursuing work, not not for God, but working with God. Extending his reign and his purpose to every corner of the earth. And I have news for you. When you go to heaven, you're not going to float on a cloud and play a harp. Do you know what's going to happen in heaven? Let's go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Everything that was stolen from you is coming back. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them again as their God. That's our story. That's where you were created to be. That's what you're looking for, and you don't even know it. One day, God will dwell again with his people, but right now, you and I experience pieces of it. We haven't experienced in its fullness yet. But the reality we find in the world we live in is something quite different than what was going on in the garden and what will happen in Revelation. We live in a world that is kind of a broken place, that is a fallen place. We live somewhere east of Eden. See, so here's what happened in Genesis three. The serpent comes along, this force of evil, and he says, "Did God actually say you shall not eat any of the, of the tree in the garden? You, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden." And the woman said to the serpent, "We can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die." But the serpent said to the woman, "You're not gonna die. It's just that God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God." You'll know good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Why did they eat the fruit of a tree prohibited by God? It wasn't because they were hungry. It wasn't because it looked good. It was the same reason that you and I do what we do. They're, we're tempted. They were tempted. We're tempted to choose to be like God. They no longer were satisfied with life with God. See, a life with God means I'm with him. He's, he's in control, but I'm, he has me with him. I'm walking with him. I don't like that. I'm not really in charge there. So what I'm going to do is pursue a life where I can control God or at least be equal to God. And so they ate The scripture says in in 3, the eyes of them were open, they knew they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together, they made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Do you think they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden before? Yes. And at that sound, they probably ran out to walk with their father, because they're created for a life with God. But this time, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. And life outside of the garden and before the new Jerusalem is a scary place. It can be terrifying. We live in a world that's not a garden, it's not a new city. It's governed by scarcity. It's governed by chaos, misfortune, horrible accidents, droughts, earthquakes, famines, cancers, and ultimately death. And we get scared. And what religion has become for all of us, and it seeps its way into Christianity too, no matter what religion you want to choose, and our atheist friends are right when they say this, religion becomes a way to attempt to control all of these forces that impact us and are out of our control. Juthani in his work does a great job showing that the issue is not what people say. Religions don't all lead to the same place. That's disparaging, that's disingenuous, but they all come from the same place, which is, I am not in control of the forces that are at work around me. I need to figure out, because I'm afraid, I need to figure out a way to gain control of these things. Religion winds up all of them, born out of fear and a need for control. See, we know this at deep level. If you're a Seinfeld fan like I am, what made the show so brilliant was he often tied into these things that we know are true but we rarely say, and George Costanza was the greatest at it. And so I want to show you this clip because I think he just shows the fear that we all live under and we try to control by by being religious. George is uh, doing like a, a thing where he's going out with a senior citizen, he's like becoming the buddy of the senior citizen, and at the beginning of this clip. And I know it's not the highest quality, but I think you'll be able to hear it. At the beginning of the clip, he asked the senior citizen, well, how old are you? 35. You know, the average lifespan for an American male is like 72. <laughs> You're really kind of pushing the envelope there. I'm not afraid to die, and I never think about it. You don't? I think about it a lot. I think about it at my age. Imagine how much I'll be thinking about it at your age. All I'll do is just keep thinking about it, till it drives me insane. I'm grateful for every moment I have. Grateful? How can you be grateful when you're so close to the end? You know that any second, poof, bam oh it can all be over. You're not stupid. You can read the handwriting on the wall. It's a matter of simple arithmetic, for God's sake. I guess I just don't care. What are you talking about? <laughs> How can you sit there and look me in the eye and tell me that you're not worried? Don't you have any sense? Don't you have a brain? Are you so completely senile you don't even know what you're talking about? <laughs> where, 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 where are you going? Life's too short to waste on you. <laughs> <laughs> no, <my boy. laughs> but, but Mr. Candwell, you, you help me for the soup. And it's funny. And a lot of times we control our lives and we get in places where we're not scared, but the truth is that this is common to everyone that's ever lived. There are forces that are beyond our control and it causes us to be afraid. And what religion provides for us often is a framework by which we think we can control God. It's always been the same tease. Eve, if you eat it, you'll be like God. And so we formulate these ways that we're going to live in relationship with God in order that we might control him. And this same concept comes into Christianity. And so instead of understanding that we're created to live a life with God, we wind up putting a Christian label on these other ways of approaching God. And they become deeply rooted. These are deeply rooted. This is why you need to work through them in your small groups. There's an instinct in us not to live with God, but to figure out a way to control him and to control our lives and not be afraid anymore. So we grab onto these four postures. We say, well, if I obey the rules, here's what I know. If I obey the rules, then things will go well for me. And I can control what will happen. I don't need to be afraid because I was a good boy. So what could happen? But we saw what that leads to. That leads to John driving home going, how could you do this to me? I show up at church. Why? So I might be blessed. I work like crazy for God because that's what he wants. When all along, guys, listen to me. When all along, all he has ever wanted for you, at least his primary goal, is not your performance or your works or your sacrifices. All along, he has always defined the relationship the same way. Before Genesis through revelation, I just want to be with my people. I just want to be with you. Don't be afraid. Trust me. You don't have to, you don't have to be in control. I want to be with you. I'm here with you. Come to me. See, this is throughout the whole scripture. Just watch these quickly. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God says of a day coming, my dwelling place shall be with them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. To Isaac fleeing from the Philistines in search of a new home, he says, don't be afraid because I'm with you. To Jacob escaping from Esau, he says, I'm with you. I'm going to keep you where you go. To Joshua crossing the Jordan into the promised land, he says, I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. To David, who is from the prophet Nathan, do all that you have in mind because God is with you. For Isaiah, to the people of Israel, under threat from the Babylonians, don't be afraid, don't fear, I'm with you. I'm your God. To the prophet Jeremiah, called to a ministry that was going to make his life miserable and under constant threat. He says, don't be afraid of them. Why? Because I am with you. I'm going to deliver you. Through Jeremiah to the people of a divided kingdom who would soon be scattered into exile. Don't be dismayed, O Israel. I'm going to save you from far away, your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob will return, have quiet and ease, and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Through the prophet Jephaniah, children of God, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He's going to take great delight in you. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Through the prophet Haggai to the returning exiles, called to rebuild the temple amid the temptation of complacency and self-concern, I am with you. Through the risen Jesus to a ragtag band of followers who he asked to trust and follow and change the world, he goes, and remember this, when you're out there, I'm with you. Always. Even to the end of the age. To the Apostle Paul in Corinth under threat from the Jews as well, the Romans. Don't be afraid, but speak and do not be silent. For I am with you. If I'm going to define the relationship, if you want to understand how the relationship works, this is it. All those other four ways are religion. That's not the deal. The deal is this. Your God wants to be with you. That's it. It's likely... Band, come on, it's likely that you and I have settled for something much less. It's why our kids go off to college and give up on God. It's why if you're honest, you might speak of a relationship with Jesus, but you never experienced one. It's why so often you can get discouraged. It's why so often you can be disappointed. It's so why often we get so scared, <laughs> even though we believe. It's because you define the relationship incorrectly. All he wants to do is to be with you. And so what we're going to do over the next bunch of weeks at the end of these talks is give you different ways that you can learn to be with God. Give you you different, different practices to learn to get off and be with him. But I'm going to conclude today with just one thought that you're going to have to wrestle with. If you want to do this, if you want to experience life the way you were created to be, if you want to stop living under all those false ways of thinking about God, here's the number one thing you've got to do. You have to create some time and space in your life for God. If you do not, you will never experience him, ever. If you don't take care of your garden in the summer, your garden will die. If you don't spend time with your spouse, your relationship will wither. And if you don't create space and time for God, and we'll teach you what to do in those periods, that relationship will die. But I want you to know you can't control him. It's only going to lead you to frustration and disappointment. But you can be with them. Father, it's my great prayer that we would understand the richness of the banquet to which we've been called, and that we would stop settling for cheap substitutes of our relationship with the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up and sing.